Well, this is the end of this series. Demons, the devil, deliverance, and depending on which title you took, the people of God or the children of God. And last Sunday night and tonight, answering the questions that people always ask. Uh, The issue tonight, oh, by the way, just uh, an aside, on Sunday, August 14th, so that's not next Sunday, but the one after, Sunday, August 14th, in the morning, I'm going to be speaking on, on the subject, the foolish pride of shouting out your abortion. Have you, has anybody seen the YouTube? Go on YouTube and just type in shouting your abortion. And, uh, and what it is, is, is all these mostly young women, and they are sick and tired of the way we have kind of put down the nastiness and the wickedness and the sin of abortion. And so they go on there, and it's just young women talking about their experience having an abortion, and that uh, it was a positive experience, it was, it was uh, good for them, and they're moving on with life, and they're kind of sick of the bad press, and so shout out your abortion is, is uh, it's the big thing now. And so, uh, I want to look at that. And so I'll be here uh, August 14th in the morning, and we're going to take a pretty good amount of time. I'm trying to find, you can understand my dilemma. I want to show you a couple of those clips that Sunday morning. And I've gone through a whole bunch of, there's a lot of them. But most of them, the language is such that you'd fire me if I showed them on. So I'm, I'm trying to find a couple that, that, um, that don't, don't have uh, expletives of bodily functions and everything else ming- mingled in. And if I, if I can, I'll, I'll show you a couple of them. Because I find it, I find it frankly unbelievable. I really find it unbelievable. that. Um, and then you think, of course, people who not only, Romans 1, not only sin, but endorse and practice and encourage. And it really probably shouldn't surprise us as much as it does. So all that will be Sunday, August 14th. And I don't deal with that. Usually I do it about annually or so. And, uh, and so that'll be... That'll be that. Answering the questions people ask. Demons, the devil, deliverance, and the people of God. If I were to just pile up emails and phone calls, people in this church and people outside this church, but kind of in the Christian uh, community, what we're dealing with tonight, I get asked a lot. Uh, The question comes from usually sincere people who find their lives kind of bound up in some kind of sin. Bondage is the word they will use on the phone or in an email or in a conversation. And it's something they've tried to overcome and, and it hasn't been working out. And then they found a book. There, there are scores of them. Or heard uh, some teacher in some setting who told them about uh, generational curses. And so they have come to the point where they're wondering. They may not believe it yet, but they're leaning in the direction of believing. These are sincere Christian people that um, they're under some kind of curse from... So, so here's, a, here's a person who, who struggles with uh, uh, sexual 
sin and addiction and finds out that his father and grandfather were into pornography. And so the idea is that there's this curse that is passed on to them and there's really no way out of it apart from being delivered from demonic oppression. They're, they're cursed with this and they believe it. And I, and I, I don't mock them, I, I feel for them. I want to talk about where this kind of thinking comes from. There are passages of scripture that frequently get quoted and how I think they're abused and what I think the Bible says about it. So that's where we're going to go tonight in the next little while. So two uh, disturbing aspects of contemporary spiritual warfare teaching. First, are there such things as generational curses? Can Christians be affected? Can Christians be affected by them? Do such curses need to be broken by identifying which demonic power or demonic stronghold is there? Do, do such curses need to be broken before deliverance can come? We're going to look at that issue tonight. And secondly, it's related, but it's slightly different. Uh, what about, are there demonic strongholds being established in the lives of Christians much earlier in their lives? Does, does that happen? In other words, before I have a conscious memory of some kind of sin being established in my life, maybe at a very early age, does my previous experience of child abuse or a mother who studied horoscopes, does that affect my ability to follow Jesus today? How much of my distant past, even though perhaps totally unremembered, how much of my distant past do I have to rummage through so I can specifically identify it and confess it. How much of that has to be rummaged through, usually with someone professing to have a gift of prophecy who will come and tell me, oh, here's what you're dealing with from when you were three or four or five years old. That stuff happens. How much of that do I have to filter through in order to find deliverance from present sins? Those two issues, generational curses and um, sins from my distant past that manifest themselves in bondage in my present, they're, they're usually talked about in books and in teachings. They're usually related like different sides of the same coin. And there are scores of Christian books devoted to this kind of teaching. Authors know what sells. Money is the name of the game, not necessarily sound theology, and Christians need to be aware. I took this off the internet just recently. Quote. Ever wondered why everyone seems to get blessed but you? <laughs> Who hasn't wondered that? Ever wonder why everyone seems to get blessed but you? Ever wonder why you've been prayed for but never healed? Ever wondered why, just when you're starting to get ahead, it all seems to fall apart? Ever wondered why the sins your father and mother were into are the ones you fall into? And, and by the way, this isn't the quote. There are scriptural reasons for that, but it's not generational curses. Ever wondered why all the things your mom and dad said about you came true? And then the answer is spelled out. Generational curses. It's very common in the spiritual warfare movement. You'll find it in the writings of people like uh, Neil Anderson, Peter Wagner, a lot of cleansing stream notes, Marilyn Hickey. Uh, sometimes, I'm not, I'm not saying all these people are wicked, sometimes it comes out in Joyce Meyer's stuff. 
um, and a host of others. Since the term generational curse is never used in the scriptures, they, they tend to look at the closest they can find, and I'm going to show you where they get this kind of teaching, though I don't think it's what these verses actually teach. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Pause. The reason for that command, it isn't spelled out in that text, but you'll find said repeatedly two or three times uh, in Exodus and Deuteronomy where, where the reason given, the reason the Lord gives to Moses to give to the people is no images, no idols, don't set up anything that's supposed to resemble me because God says, you, you never saw me when I spoke. You, you, I, wasn't, I wasn't visible to you in that sense. So don't go making a representation of what I'm supposed to be like. That, that's what... God actually says. That's the reason behind don't make idols, don't make images, don't put up statues. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here's the phrase. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So they, right there, they just, they go to that, and they pull that out. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. See? Generational curses. Here's another one, Exodus 34, 4 to 7. And so Moses cut two tablets of, tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning, went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord commanded him. Took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Clear the guilty. That's the important phrase. And then they go to this line, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there are the primary two texts that proponents of generational curses go to. I want to put some thoughts together on those scriptures. So point number one. Y'all still with me? You're there. Thank you so much. Every once in a while, just go, still here. Point number one, the text from Exodus do not teach the doctrine of a generational curse. But both these passages and later references quoting those words, because they are referred to over and over in the Old Testament, they deal with keeping God's law. And the people were to know that it really mattered, that it was important, that God was serious about people keeping his law, his commandments. But the people were also careless 
and, and they were forgetful. It's, there's nothing new here. What you're encountering in these instructions is that, like most of us today, the people found it easy to keep God's law for short periods of time. New Year's resolutions. I'm really going to beef up my prayer life this year. And then you know how it goes. I'm going to read through the Bible four times, and then about the middle of February, you realize now I'm 19 days behind, and I've got to read half the Old Testament this afternoon, or I'm, I'm never going to catch up. Gonna go, I'm going to start going to church Sunday night. I've said all along, this is not in the Bible, if, if you stay home from church four consecutive Sunday nights, you're never coming back. And the reason is you find out, this is really nice. There's no pressure. I can relax. It's enjoyable. Those kinds of things... We, people found it easy to make short-term commitments. They made resolutions. They were careful. They were disciplined. But it was in fits and starts. And so God has a word for them. So to encourage their diligence, their carefulness, their holiness, he reminds them, and he reminds us, that their actions carry consequences far beyond the brief moment in which their actions are committed. Actions always do. Many of us are prepared to live with the personal consequences of the wrongs we do. We feel we must be responsible, and we're willing to face the music for bad decisions if we must. But then as now, most parents wanted their children to care more about the things of God than they did. That's human nature. We want the best for our kids... We sometimes want for them what we wouldn't pursue as aggressively for ourselves. And so, as God gives the law to his people, that's the setting, by the way, for these remarks, he calls them to remember that if they grow careless and they set up idols and a pagan culture, it will have disastrous consequences beyond their own moment. It will affect the actions, the affections, the ambitions, and the worship of generations to come. It's always the case. There's nothing new in this. This, this is why those serious words are placed right where they are in the text. The command is about fleeing idolatry. People must be very careful what they worship. The idols they set up, whether they are physical idols, as in Moses' case, or the idols we set up in our hearts, the things we start to prize and praise and devote our energies and our cash to, those will be the things our children will likely worship after us. But it's not a curse. It's life. They will see. They will watch. They will learn. Future generations will grow to worship what we worship. And so then, as now, here's what, here's what Moses, the Lord through Moses, but Moses is the speaker. Here's what Moses doesn't want 
for these parents. He wants them to have an understanding. He doesn't want these parents spending their weekends by the pool and then phoning the youth pastor when their kids aren't crazy about the things of God or going to church. You get it? Don't call the youth pastor. That wasn't the problem. They watched. They learned. They worship what you worship. They don't worship what you say you worship. Please get this. They don't worship what you say you worship. They worship what you worship. So he warns, if these children learn to worship the false gods of their fathers and their grandfathers, they too will come under the wrath of God, just as their fathers and grandfathers did. In other words, God wasn't punishing the children for their parents' sins, but their parents can bring judgment of God on future generations by setting them down the wrong path. The text actually says that when you look at it carefully. Look at Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Where did these sweet little children learn to hate God? The word probably wasn't used. Where did these sweet little children learn to not take him that seriously? Well, they learned it from their fathers. And they learned it from their fathers. That's what that text is about. This isn't a hocus-pocus text where you need to carry a a three-leaf clover or a lucky rabbit's foot to, to keep the bad spirits away. That's not what this is about. This is about the real spiritual warfare. There's the problem. The children grow up to hate God. That's what the text says. That word hate is in the continuous participle in the Hebrew. It indicates ongoing, continuous action. That's the problem for future generations. They grow up at their parents' and grandparents' example to worship different gods, to have other goals, other ambitions, other dreams, other desires. They grow up and they continue in those same sins and they will bear the punishment for that sin. It's not a curse passed on like some gene in the bloodline. You'll notice the word curse isn't even used in those verses. Flee superstition, church. Flee superstition. These verses are a description of the way people can learn sinful courses of actions from previous generations and receive the same punishment of God for the very same sins. Point number two. In fact, the Old Testament teaches much to refute the doctrine of generational curses. It's as though... God knew people would grow up in that kind of a pagan culture with all sorts of pagan religions. It's as though God knew that 
the children of Israel would grow up with these false, distorted notions about how sin happens, that he, he seems to labor to make it clear to them. Ezekiel 18, 1 to 3. That's in your notes, right? The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel speaks. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Why, why, God says, why are the people running around saying the fathers have eaten the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? So the parents did this and, and that's why the children are suffering. God says, don't even talk like that. I don't want you thinking that way. Don't belittle personal responsibility like that. They're interesting words. The people were getting superstitious. This has always been a problem among God's people. They had developed a saying, a proverb, to to dodge personal responsibility. I can't help my temper. You should have seen my dad. He had a a terrible temper. Sure, I'm violent once in a while with my wife, but I got that from my dad. He was like that with mom. And so everything everything that the Lord would say to these people, they would have an excuse for why they were acting that way. And God says, don't even talk like that. That's not how this works. It's like saying the fathers eat the lemon and that's why the kid's face is all puckered up. God tells the people he doesn't want them thinking like that or talking like that. The whole chapter is this detailed explanation of how personal responsibility works before the Lord. And and then it's summed up in these very clear words. Ezekiel 18.20. The soul who sins shall die. Now, I'm asking you, could God make it clearer than this? The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. You don't have to be a nuclear physicist to figure that out, do you? It's just right there. The son, any son, anywhere, or daughter, shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. They will suffer, they can be led into the same sins, but they'll suffer for their sins, not their father's sins. Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You do not own the sins of any of your ancestors. And so you don't have to disown them. You don't need them cast out. Sins like outbursts of anger, greed... Hatred, these are called in scripture so clearly sins of the flesh, not sins of demons. They're not the work of ancestral spirits or generational curses or demons or any such thing. You have your own nature that's corrupted by the fall and it needs constant nurture, denial, retraining in righteousness. It's the essence of the ongoing spiritual battle that we all face in this room. Galatians 5, 16 to 21. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. There's only one Spirit there, the Holy Spirit. There are no other spirits involved. Do you see that? The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, if I was underlining, works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. There's, there's, there's nothing to re- renounce or, or, or uh, bind or rebuke. Fits of anger are a work of the flesh. They're you. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the point is, there are desires of the flesh that result in works of the flesh, but it's you, it's me. Any Christian can choose for himself either to walk in the flesh and give in to these impulses, I said any Christian, or walk in the power and life of the Holy Spirit, we are responsible for that, to make those choices and establish those patterns. Three. Can sins from my past establish demonic strongholds in my present? And if that's the case... How can I be sure I'm, I would have said, uncovering and repenting of all my sins? What about sins I don't even remember? This troubles a lot of Christians right here. They've been taught that somewhere in the distant past, maybe when they were too young to remember it, or... In the distant past, something they they just forgot to mention in prayer one night. They repented of this, 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 and they forgot that. And so it's it's kind of um, in their soul. Remember the tripartite thing, body, soul, spirit. I'm not going to review it all. But there in their soul, this thing is just morphing into a demonic stronghold. And then they're told, usually by someone with a gift of discernment or prophecy, that here's somewhere in your past, you don't remember it now, but this got into your soul, and now there's a, there's a demonic stronghold. And you need to know it and identify it, and that's usually where somebody else comes in and says, here's the spirit of bondage that you, you need to deal with. And so Christians are sometimes even prophesied over by someone else who will reveal the source of the stronghold that that Christian just can't remember all by himself or herself. That's a very abusive use of a very precious gift to the church. Just, just when that kind of thing is going on, just get in a different room. Like, don't, don't even be a part of that nonsense. Don't let anyone shepherd your spiritual walk with their prophecy. Did everybody hear that? Do not let anyone shepherd your spiritual walk with their gift of prophecy. You know who shepherds me? 
Jesus does. Way better. Stay in the word. Keep in regular fellowship with one local church. Be accountable. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you through the word. Repent instantly. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Be humble. So all of this raises this issue. What about that, Pastor Don? It raises the issue, of course, of repentance. How, how deep does repentance need to go? See, what Cleansing Stream and other movements will teach is you, you can only repent of the sins you know about. This is important. And so if there's stuff going on in there, it's like, it's like an x-ray. Eh? If there's stuff going on in there that you don't know about, well, your repentance, coming to Jesus, confessing your sin, that's pretty much useless. It, can't, it won't get to the bottom of this. That's the theory. And so these things need to be identified like personalities. They need to be named, and then they need to be cast out because you kneeling by your bed and repenting of your sin won't It's like stains in clothing without the bleach. You're not going to get this out. How deep does my repentance need to go? Whose sins am I repenting of? What if I miss confessing something that I don't even remember? Those are three really important questions. I want to tell you how I approach it. Predominantly, I approach it, I've shared this with my Christian ed class a number of times, so for for you people, it's a bit of a repeat. I approach it with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I take those words very simply and very literally. I take them to mean that if I confess the sins that the Lord reveals in my heart through conscience, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, the clear teaching of scriptures, and the first three being regulated by the third. I know that's a little different from your notes. But if I just faithfully do that, then the Lord is faithful and just to forgive those sins. Now that in itself is a wonderful promise. But that's not all the verse says. There's better news than that in that verse. There's something even more stunning and liberating and wonderful. If I will faithfully confess and forsake all the sins that the Lord brings to my mind, not only will he forgive those sins, the ones I confess, but he will cleanse my life from how much unrighteousness? Bingo. There's nobody that has to add any delivering, cleansing work to what my Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. It does not need beefing up. It is really effective. 
Do you remember what Paul says about when Jesus died on the cross and how it disarmed principalities and powers? Do you remember what he said about how it moves us out of one kingdom into another entirely? So please note that contrary to some of the teachings of the spiritual warfare movement, true repentance doesn't do one thing, it does two things. It brings both forgiveness and cleansing. In other words, you don't have to repent and then have somebody else tell you where the demon is and and renounce that and have it cast out. You don't need that extra work. Forgiveness and cleansing aren't two separate results. The text says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing comes from the finished work of the cross, not from renouncing the demonic. Notice even further, though, this verse describes the work of the cross in very complete terms. There is no part of my life that it will miss. The whole being is cared for, cleansed from all unrighteousness. Let me say this, long after I'm dead and gone, or selling real estate in San Francisco, remember this, never let anyone impute sins to your life that you don't remember. Did everybody get that? Never let anyone, I don't care how they shout, thus saith the Lord, or dance, or sway, or dream, or... I don't care. Never let anyone impute sins to your life that you don't remember. Like that Honda commercial, I liked it. Never open your hood to strangers. By all means, let Jesus, through his wonderful word, reveal anything he wants to your heart. You get nowhere covering up sin. Always confess totally, deeply, Instantly and forsake any sin that he brings to the surface of your life. Stay in the word. Stay in frequent, regular fellowship with one local church. But don't worry about trolling through all the fog of half-forgotten memories. Don't let people stir up your imagination. Don't let anyone else be Jesus for you. God doesn't hold you accountable for the things your parents did. Your sins become yours when you embrace them with your will. There are no other kinds of sins in Scripture. There is one curse. This may surprise you. There is one curse mentioned in the Scriptures, and it has affected all of us. There is one ancestor who has affected my present spiritual needs, but it isn't my father or my grandfather His name was Adam. And he has messed us all up good. That's a little sexist. It's actually Eve and Adam. There's a curse that has affected everyone. It's called the fall. But the only curse that has affected us has been thoroughly dealt with by God himself. On the cross, our Lord took care of the one curse that affects us. You can read about it in Romans chapter 5, 
verse 12, and then 15 to 17. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I had to jump down. It's just a long reference. 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Keep it simple, church. Stay away from superstition. Rely on the word more than any personal testimony you hear and the experiences and the statistics of others. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's able to keep you from falling. Let's pray.